The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Well, Frank, I hope I didn't keep you waiting too long. Great to see you again, Perry. Good to see you, too. The Bar Association seminar three years ago, right? It's awful, isn't it? We live in the same city, and we have to go to San Francisco to see each other. What's uh, this all about, Frank? Perry, do you know the name Johnny Sorrento? Who doesn't? Especially since his wife's murder three days ago. This morning, they arrested Johnny for the murder. What's that got to do with you? I'm Johnny's corporate attorney. But Sorrento is a gangster. You must have a rap sheet that could paper this office. Now, look. I'll be the first to admit that Johnny Sorrento came out of the rackets. He'll tell you that himself. But he's been straight for the last 10 years, maybe longer. Believe me, Perry, when he came to me, I was just as skeptical as you. And I had him thoroughly, and I mean thoroughly, investigated. He was clean as a whistle. And you want me to represent him on this murder charge? Well, Perry, I'm no criminal attorney. He's out on bail, and he wants you. Oh, Frank, I don't think so. Any way that I can convince you just to meet him as a, as a personal favor? I will think about that. But that's all I can promise. Can't ask for more. I'll call you tomorrow. Thanks, Perry. Hello? Ken? Well, what do you think? Remember the speech you made at that same Bar Association seminar? What about it? You said in this country, every person is entitled under the law to a legal defense. Even the lowliest and the most despised. You went on to say the more serious the crime, the more important the defense. And you said something about it being the attorney's job to defend any accused. And how it was only the jury or the judge who should determine guilt. In other words... You think I should take the case? I don't think you're going to reject it out of hand. What do you think? I think you should reject it out of hand. Welcome, everyone. It's Thursday, February 18th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 MHz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today, where the gravity of our subject matter is very serious indeed. I understand it's the coming wave, and exactly what is that wave, Robert? I understand you're going to be talking about that. Oh, uh, we're going to wax a little scientific at the uh, last half of the hour, talking about... Uh, naming objects in space, and the latest discovery about gravity waves. Gravity waves. Hmm. Sounds like a serious subject. Very heavy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for my part, I plan to follow up on the theme that I began last week, namely the role that feminism is playing with regard to what I called uncivilizing our society and the fundamental values on which our you know, our society's based. Last week we covered the Gian Gameshi trial, or rather the incredulous testimonies of his accusers as exposed by his lawyer, Marie, Marie Hennen. 
This week, an update and some direct-from-the-horse's-mouth evidence of my argument made last week on the proverbial silver platter, as they say. But first, our reminder. Remember, you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5.110 MHz, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. We also have a donate button for those who wish to do so. A nice thought, and it certainly is helpful considering how our markets are expanding and the things that we need to uh, keep the show going. Well, Robert, their eyes are opening, and with that, their minds, to the possibility that perhaps women are not really the omnipotent truth-tellers that feminists so boldly (laughs) insist that they are. For the first time since I began reviewing the false claims, at least the ones I found, of the accusers against Bill Cosby, extraordinary evidence of this pattern of deceit emerged from an unexpected source, the Gian Gameshi trial that wrapped up a week ago today. Now, on the very day of our broadcast and online release one week ago, National Post reporter Christy Blatchford penned the following commentary. Robert, this is such an extraordinary eyewitness account from someone who was at the trial itself and who has been following it in the pages of uh, Canada's National Post and other subsidiary newspapers. Everyone has to hear this account to understand what's really happening in courts across North America. And in this following account, National Post reporter Christy Blatchford goes beyond the sordid details of the Gomeshi trial itself to describe the cause of what seems to be this miscarriage of justice or miscarriage of accusations. I don't know how you want to look at it. Perhaps it is justice. But feminism itself, and that's what surprised me most about this article. And it's from the National Post, February 11th. And you have to hear this. This is in her own words, and I quote, At the just-concluded sexual assault trial of the fallen CBC star Gian Gomeshi, prosecutors Mike Callaghan and Corey Langdon didn't have long to wait. Their first unpleasant surprise came on opening day, with the first of three female accusers in the witness stand in a Toronto courtroom. She was, and still is considered, their strongest complainant and the least discredited, but it sure didn't stop there. Complainant number two, Trailer Park Boys actor and Royal Canadian Air Force Captain Lucy de Couture, who waived the mandatory publication ban on her identity and thus became the face and symbol of Gomeshi's accusers, was next. Despite protestations, she had no romantic or sexual interest in Gomeshi after her purported assault. I guarantee you that, she told his lead lawyer. The formidable Marie Hennen, it turned out, she had all but stalked the 48-year-old former star. All this after he'd allegedly choked and slapped her hard in the face and had told him in an email she wanted to, quote, F your brains out. A few days later, de Couture wrote him a school love letter that ended with the line, I love your hands. Incredibly, the last complainant flamed out even more spectacularly. As Heinen got her, no, got her to acknowledge, she told lies, omitted details, and deliberately misled police and prosecutors, and then confronted her with the fact that after the alleged attack, she had taken Gomeshi home with her one night, and as a lawyer so intimately put it, messed around and gave him a hand job. <laughs> Isn't this unbelievable stuff? Great theater. Yes, it is. Excellent. Great theater. <laughs> The latter two accusers, the former Q host, is pleading not guilty to four sex assault charges and one of choking de Couture, made 11th-hour disclosures of some of these details only on the eve of taking the witness stand. But though these developments caused actual gasps in the crowded courtroom and had lawyers, the city over-reeling in disbelief at the havoc, the die had been cast long before that. And this is the killer, Robert. 
As one veteran Toronto lawyer put it this week, quote, the criminal justice system has been hijacked by ideology. In this instance, the feminist can't that accusers must always be believed. I haven't heard that said except by me until now. Well, it's Christy Blanchford. Yeah. I, I've agreed with a lot of what she's um, mm-hmm. uh, written about uh, in a lot of court cases before when she gives her opinion. Uh, some, sometimes not, but um, no, she hits no. the nail on the head with this one. This it's one's absolutely true. Sure. Uh, and she writes, the Gomeshi prosecution was born in the late fall, early winter of 2014. That's when we started covering... Uh, Uh, the Bill Cosby issue, and that's what she says too, in the same maelstrom that saw Bill Cosby first called out as a rapist and a developing national conversation about sexual assault and harassment and barriers reporting it. Uh, This publicity alone spelled trouble enough for the complainants in court. This is what I've been saying. Stay out of the the court of public opinion or you will compromise your other court. The alleged victims reported to Toronto Police only after they had been well interviewed. In de Couture's case, nine times in the pages of the Star and other newspapers and on air at CBC and other stations. While that may have been empowering for the women, it meant their versions of what happened were well on public record already. And that meant any inconsistencies or differences between what they told the media and what they told police were there for the getting by the defense team. And that's exactly what I did with, with Cosby. There they are in all, you know, National Enquirer, all the Cosby accusers. It's right there for the getting. Additionally, Couture and the third complainant quickly bonded as online friends over Gomeshi. And in less than a year, uh, the two women exchanged more than 5,000 Facebook messages. It was particularly galling in de Couture's case, for in the same period that she was nodding her head sorrowfully in TV interviews about Gomeshi's situation and professing compassion for him, she was telling her newfound Facebook friend, I want him effing decimated. For a time, it appeared as though anyone who had ever had a date with Gomeshi, good or bad, felt the need to go online and quote-unquote share it. And months, where his name appeared far more often in major Canadian news outlet headlines than Cosby's. As the allegations against Gomeshi and the media and online grew, the pressure mounted on the police. Why did none of these women feel safe reporting to them? Four days after the CBC fired Gomeshi, uh, the Star published its first story on the scandal. Then Chief Bill Blair encouraged women to report. Our first priority is their safety, he said, of the alleged victims and their recovery. It was an astonishing remark for the head of an agency whose primary function, many would have imagined, was to investigate allegations of crime, not comfort those reporting it. Yet two days later, Inspector Joanna Beaven Desjardins, commander of the Forest's Sex Crimes Unit, held a press conference to announce that three women had come forward with allegations against Gomeshi. She repeatedly said that, quote, we believe victims when they come in. 100% we're, we're behind them 100%, and we believe them right from the onset. There's never a doubt about believing them, and it's all about the victims and moving forward. The three Gomeshi accusers all duly pronounced themselves satisfied by their treatment at the hands of police. All said they felt safe and respected. Now remember that, Robert. (laughs) The results of the investigation are less clear. The first complainant, for instance, was interviewed once for a grand total of 35 minutes. Another one uh, saw the woman tell her story for 14 minutes, and when the third complainant arranged to give her late-in-the-day second statement and told officers what it was about, that little detail about her taking Gomeshi home and masturbating him, the detective spent only nine minutes asking her about the encounter. Nine minutes after 13 months of the woman steadfastly maintaining that she kept her distance from Gomeshi after the assault. Strangely, given the remarkable nature of the disclosure, the interview wasn't recorded. Isn't that fascinating? 
Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner and Britain's senior law enforcement officer, uh, wrote in The Guardian this week, it may be time for Britain to consider dropping its policy of automatically believing those who say they've been sexually abused. The policy was embraced in 2014, of course, the year the presumption of guilt, not innocent, took the planet over. <laughs> a good investigator, he wrote, would go and test the accuracy of the allegations and the evidence with an open mind. Test the evidence, an open mind? Who could have imagined these would ever be deemed revolutionary concepts for a police force? When de Couture and the third complainant were being mostly roundly discredited inside City Hall, there were still protesters on the steps outside with signs that read, believe the, re the survivors and believe her. They might just as well have been covering their eyes and ears, blinder than any statue of Themis, the goddess of justice. The judge will deliver his verdict on March 24th, and that's the end of that article. What an incredible account. Thank you, Christy Blatchford. Now, if you thought that was something, wait till you hear what's coming up next with your own ears and straight, as I said before, from the horse's mouth. The first voice you're about to hear is that of an open line caller to the Tom McConnell radio show, talk show on CKTB AM 610 in St. Catharines, Ontario. The next voice is that of a male, is that of Andy Utman, radio talk show host on CJBK AM 1290 radio in London, Ontario, who's speaking to someone I've talked about a lot on this show in the past, feminist Megan Walker. On the other side of our bumper is a mix of his two separate interviews with, again, feminist Megan Walker and London lawyer Phil Millar, who has prosecuted cases of this nature in courts, all ostensibly on the subject of the Gomeshi trial. But if you listen carefully, you will soon come to realize that Gomeshi is not the real topic of concern, nor is he even really a factor in what's being discussed. Robert, you wonder sometimes whether art imitates life or life imitates art, but I heard a truly glaring example last week on Friday. And on that hour show last week, we featured a bumper bite taken from the TV series Moonlighting, if you recall, where Maddie and Addison, uh, played by Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis, get into an argument in which Willis objects to how Maddie sees herself as a woman first and a person second. Well, just listen to this. I was, wanted to say something regarding the John Gomeshi trial, and I think uh, it's not really going the way that a lot of people thought it would. I think he has a fantastic lawyer, but I wonder, is she a lawyer first and a woman second? Um, I think, like a few years ago, there was hockey players that came forward saying that their coach had molested them or sexually assaulted them, and they were able to go to court and win, and people believed them. But these women, people are not believing them, and I wonder, when, when are women going to be believed? And I think... Um, well, I just think that the the lawyer is in giving a bad name to women, although she is a very good lawyer. So that's all I wanted to say. Okay, Gomeshi, let's uh, turn the page. Uh, Gomeshi, it's wrapped up. Sentencing next month. Uh is there any chance, uh, we've had uh, London lawyer Phil Millar suggesting he really cannot see any scenario where there is a conviction? 
Well, I, I would probably agree. I know that uh, of the women that come to see us at the London Abuse Women's Centre with sexual violence cases, I've not seen one that has resulted in a conviction. Um, I know my colleague at Ottawa Rape Crisis Centre in Ottawa is the same. They've never seen a conviction. Um, I think oftentimes what we do instead of addressing the fundamental issue of uh, the justice system and uh, the legislation not appropriately protecting women is we blame women. You can just say, if, unless you've gone through that, you have no idea, and that's why it's mostly men, although there are lots of men who are victims of childhood sexual abuse who will understand that. Um, the majority of women that will attack women uh, and feminists for speaking up in favor of uh, survivors and victims will say, well, you know, she's just lying or she's vindictive, um, because they have absolutely no understanding we have- of what it's like to walk in this world in the shoes of a woman. I would probably agree. I know that uh, of the women that come to see us at the London Abuse Women's Centre with sexual violence cases, I've not seen one that has resulted in a conviction. Megan Walker, always with an interesting perspective. Phil Millar, London lawyer, uh, you've dealt with some of these cases. Your response to what Megan has to say? Well, that particular clip kind of made me sit up straight because I know that, you know, the conviction rate in Canada is, is very high. If if the police come and charge you with an with an offense, the conviction rate is very high in Canada. I know personally, I've convicted people who have sexually assaulted uh, men and women, and I've defended people who were convicted. So convictions happen all the time, and any woman who has a legitimate complaint should not feel like uh, it's hopeless. They should go to the police because convictions happen. That is that was not accurate. They happen all the time, and the justice system, in my mind, uh, at times actually has gone too far in kind of when you're just hearing one person's story and another, because I think convictions happen sometimes too frequently. But, you know, I I think that sometimes Megan focuses a little too much on the fact that anybody who says there's a victim is never lying. Like, how do we factor in the fact that there are some people who who make stuff up, who have mental illnesses, who make stuff up, who need attention? It's there. I'm not saying it's the majority of it, but it's, you know, we want to avoid putting innocent people in jail if we don't scrutinize the victim's story. People respond in a very interesting way to this issue. Let me share a couple of texts. Andy, all men are scum and all women are always victims. That's Megan's world. I think these three women in Toronto are liars and just trying to ruin uh, Gian Gameshi. Andy, does normal behavior after being assaulted include lying to the cops, lying to the Crown, lying to the judge 12 years later with heavy inclinations of collusion? So, um, Phil, there are people at each end of the spectrum. Well, you know, a trauma expert's not going to take that away. Like, you know, the characterization of it of a, of it being a one-way street, there are some women who like rough sex. Like, I'll say it. It doesn't seem like anybody wants to say it. I, I'm not saying this is the case, but it's potential. And then somebody, like, that's out there. I'm not judging it, but uh, that could be the case. When somebody says the things that uh, we heard in that case, like, I love your hands and I want to bleep your brains out, uh, you know, those are strong, somewhat aggressive statements from somebody so i, I don't so yeah, let's let's run with that because here's another text along that line andy i'm really going out of the box however would like to know if ms walker thinks it's possible that the women liked the rough sex and then got upset he was into just rough sex and not a relationship that's a question i was going to ask you so some women are into rough sex and if they continue to feel that way everything's fine but these women 
later, mm-hmm. regretted it, and went to the police. Why? There's any number of reasons, right? Some people are ill. Some people are bored. Uh, some of them are legitimate. And, and you know, and I think you have to, in order to protect all women, go to the police, even if you're not going to be successful, because that helps. Okay, to wrap up this whole Gomeshi talk, because we're now in the in a, a mode of waiting for uh, several weeks till the actual sentencing. First of all, you think there will be an acquittal. I didn't sit through the whole thing, but it does seem like there's credibility issues that would make a conviction difficult. Okay, if there is an acquittal, do we just carry on? And what about all the women who are would immediately say, listen, if that's the way you are treated when you step forward... Uh, I'm 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 never going to call the police. Yeah, well, if you're withholding love letters to your alleged aggressor later, that's the way you're going to be treated, and that's the reality. And that's got nothing to do with an unfair justice system. That's called a fair justice system. You think this trial's been fair? I think it is perfectly fair, and it should be done because some this man may go to jail. And if you're going to make the allegations, you're not just going to believe it because they're women saying it happened. You're going to believe it because their story adds up it makes sense and uh, this is a great example of i think of our system working and if he's convicted it's working if he's acquitted he's working because the judge is sitting there hearing the evidence and he hears it from both sides and makes the call so you know let's instead of judging and blaming women for their behavior take a look at who's actually responsible for the women's woman's trauma and that's the perpetrator and I i blame him not any woman and i think it's unfair and does an injustice to women to say that they're responsible for, you know, being on the stand and not testifying appropriately. Wow. <laughs> My jaw is right down there on the floor, Robert. What a, an indictment of feminism from a feminist herself. Though, of course, she doesn't see it that way. Let's review what we've just heard. First, that caller, Barbara, on, on the other side of the bumper, on Tom McConnell's show, she was astonishingly sexist with a complete attitude of innocence on the part of that elderly female caller. That was the disturbing element of that call to me. Throughout the whole time I was listening to it, I kept yelling at her on the radio, saying, hey lady, do you hear yourself? Are you aware of what you're just saying? I thought it was so sad. Yeah, it was sad. For a a woman who who was obviously of advanced years, to have that kind of an attitude is just simply sad. It, it sounds like she missed the whole revolution, <laughs> you know, from her age, right? And, uh, you know, she says, fantastic lawyer, but she's a lawyer first and a woman second, you know, referring to Marie Hennon. And she talks about how hockey players who came forward about their coach were believed and able to go to court and win, but these women aren't being believed. Well, none of that's true. All of them were believed and went to court to prove their allegations. The former had evidence. The latter did not have any evidence. In fact, all the evidence would suggest it was Gomeshi who should be accusing the women. I just think the lawyer is giving a bad name to women, though she's a good lawyer, concludes that caller. Now, that's sad. If you're a good lawyer but you're a woman, you can't be a good person. If a woman is a good lawyer, then she's a bad woman. If women themselves are saying this kind of thing, is it, is it any wonder they can't be taken seriously? And like you say, it's sad, it's tragic, it's immoral, it's monstrous. Would you want that caller on your jury? Oh. <laughs> not for a second. <laughs> she so doesn't no, have any preconceived bias no. or anything like that. No, of course not. No, no wonder Gomeshi picked a trial without a jury. This is a mob mentality and collectivist thinking that is the uncivilizing force behind feminism that we discussed on the show last week. So no doubt in the minds of such women... Christy Blatchford must be a reporter first and a woman second, therefore a bad woman, right? Then there's feminist Megan Walker from Andy Utman's show. 
Everything I hear from Megan Walker only confirms to my mind that she's both a man-hater and a woman-hater. If those men or women do not agree with feminism's irrational, unjust, and fascist motives, but she's a man-hater without the last condition. <laughs> you know, when I listen to Megan, and I've known Megan uh, for many, many years, uh, she is actually doing so much damage to the cause of women's equality in society than any man has done, if you ask me. Unbelievable. She's destroying the, uh, the credibility of women as a, as a gender. I, I agree. And, you know, if I were her counselor or psychiatrist or psychologist listening to what we just heard, I might be considering some serious intervention. That woman's carrying around a lot of baggage, emotional baggage. I hear, I've been hearing it for years. I know her well, too. You know, we've had a lot of encounters with Megan. And I sure wouldn't be giving her government funding, which is really at the root of her man-hatred. Taxpayers pay her to do this stuff, and we have to realize that. Now, you know, she says of the women that she's seen at the London Abuse Women's Center with sexual violence cases, she's not seen one that resulted in a, in a conviction. And she says the same in, in the Rape Crisis Center in Ottawa. Well, if the purpose of the center is to get convictions, then I would have to de declare it a complete failure, a 100% failure. Instead of looking for justice, instead of determining whether an accused is guilty or innocent in the light of evidence, here's the real agenda of the feminists changing the law. And I quote from what we just heard. What we do instead of addressing the fundamental issue of the justice system and the legislation not appropriately protecting women is we blame the women's, she says. Now from Christy Blatchford, quote, the three Gomeshi accusers all duly pronounced themselves satisfied by their treatment at the hands of police. All said they felt safe and respected. A complete contradiction to what Walker is saying about this case. And I have to ask, is Megan Walker talking about this case or something else? Walker could care less about the guilt or innocence of Gomeshi or of Bill Cosby. She says the same things about both of them, as if they, those people didn't exist. They're just guilty of being. And what is she protecting them from? Protect them from what? What I've been saying since November 14, from being held accountable for their false accusations or any lies or misinformation they may bring to a court of law or to a court of public opinion. A protection of that sort would require the violation of everyone's individual rights and pr preclude truth from any discussion or consideration in a given case where any woman is involved. Can you imagine what that would do to women? And so she says that's why it's mostly men, although male victims will understand. See, here she's bringing all this baggage with her. The majority of women that will attack women feminists for speaking up in favor of survivors and victims will say, well, you know, she's just lying, she's vindictive, because they have absolutely no understanding of what it's like to walk in this world in the shoes of a woman. Is that a woman hater, or what? That's a, that's a life hater. It, it, it's, something's wrong there, and, seriously. And, and just to reiterate, what um, we've said on past shows, the stated goal of the London Abuse Women's Center is to advance the feminist ideology. Yes. That is written uh, in their statement. And we've covered that before on the show. Yeah. We, read, we read the statement literally from their homepage. And this is not a charitable organization by any stretch of my imagination. It is a political organization out there to push an ideology and a political agenda. That's right. When I hear Walker talk, it's an expression of such seething hatred and of carrying so much personal baggage. I, I, I almost think she should be barred from public discourse. The fundamental issue is not the justice system, as she insists, but justice. And that's part of what feminists want removed from the system. <laughs> then there was Phil Millar, who said he was made to sit up straight because he knows that the conviction rate in Canada is very high. And he has a personal, you know, personal experience to demonstrate that. Convictions happen, he says. 
what Megan Walker said was not accurate, he says. They happen all the time in the justice system, and in his mind, he says, has actually gone too far. Convictions happen too frequently. Sometimes Megan focuses a little too much on the fact that anyone who says they're a victim is never lying. <laughs> a little too much, holy cow. And he says this is a characterization of one-way street. I was surprised that he would bring up the issue because, of course, you know, he, he himself said no one wants to say it. There are some women who like rough sex. And that's just a fact. And he says when you say things like, I love your hands and I want to bleep your brains out, those are aggressive, strong statements. No kidding. And he asked an interesting question. He says these women like rough sex but later regretted it. So he understands that it was consensual then and then the, that the regret came later? This almost brings back that topic of affirmative consent. Yeah. Oh, now, no, apparently now it's no, you know, not sufficient to say that, do you consent? Do you consent to this? Do you consent to that? Will you continue to consent even, you know, years later? That's, that has mm-hmm. to be written in on, on a contract now. Like, you know, you just can't consent now. Will you consent later? Exactly. <laughs> Will you remove your consent when you get over it or whatever? You know, it's just nonsense. But apparently, you know, if Miller's a lawyer in the courtroom, he's saying that some are ill, some are bored, some bored, are legit. Yes, I mean, he yes. must run into that a lot. Yes. And that's scary. You know, not getting away with lying to the court has nothing to do with an unfair justice system. As he said, that's a fair justice system. If you're going to make an allegation, you're not going to say, uh, you know, you'll believe it just because women said it happens. You're going to believe it because you have the facts and the story and it makes sense. And he says, that's an example of our system working. I agree wholeheartedly. But of course, Megan Walker doesn't. She says, instead of judging and blaming women for their behavior, let's take a look at who's actually responsible for the woman's trauma. And that's the perpetrator. I blame him, not any woman. It's unfair and does an injustice to women to say they're responsible for being on the stand and not testifying appropriately. Can you imagine saying that? Like I said before, she's doing damage to those women who are oh. actually abused and who uh, have a legitimate beef against an, uh, well, you know, well, an that, abuser. That was my case against the 50 complainants against Cosby. I said, look, if there's one genuine complainant in there, that complainant does not want to be associated with the other 49 liars, mm-hmm. right? And why would you keep them together? That's com- in- incredibly compromising. And you know when Walker says that Gomeshi is responsible for the women's trauma, I think she means that in every regard. Even if it was a love case, even if he rejected her, that causes trauma, right? And he's still responsible for that. But it's, it's both fair and just to apply this standard to men that she doesn't want applied to women, but what does that say about the status of women relative to men? That last line is so evil and an expression of an idea uh, that's just horrible. It's difficult for me to express my revulsion for everything Megan Walker's so-called feminism stands for. It is pure sexism, fascism, and an inversion of all principles of justice. Not only is the presumption of innocence tossed aside, but even when found not guilty, the presumption of guilt must be maintained. Sickening, repulsive. How it was ever allowed to get this far is simply a consequence of government financing, I think. You know, many years ago, the cause of women was just, if you ask me. They didn't have the vote. They weren't treated. They were treated as second-class citizens, and they had legitimate beeps. And that political movement that developed to try to change those things had legitimate um, legitimacy. What we see today with feminism is completely the opposite. We have a Megan Walker out there and feminists like her who are basically saying women are weaker sex. Women are, by their very nature, victims. And and I think that that disparages women. That sets women aside as 
a second-class citizen. It does. You know, worthy, apparently, in her mind, of special treatment. They must be believed if they open their mouth. They can't lie. That's absolute nonsense. So that's why I say she's doing so much damage to the cause of women's equality. Now, this was more, this was disturbing, too, when Ann Utman says, you know, after reviewing some of the public opinions, he says, people, there are people at each end of the spectrum. And I'm thinking, is an opinion still valid, even when all the evidence and truth, you know, denies it? <laughs> how, how can you say you're still at the other end of the spectrum? They carry on these conversations with Megan after she'd been proven to be untrue, as though nothing had happened. It's like it never happened. Megan Walker always has an interesting perspective, says Andy, and I'm thinking interesting. Yep. Her, her, her perspective is a complete <laughs> denial of reality and reason. It's wacko to the core. That's interesting. You know, that's interesting? Well, yeah. What's interesting is watching the feminist train wreck keep going, even though it's been off track for years. That's what's interesting. It's a train wreck. That's about all I have to say on this subject, Rob, Robert. It's just a disgrace, and that's where we have to leave it. And uh, we'll see what happens with the Gameshi trial when it closes at the end of March. I guess if I was going to put myself in anyone's hands, it'd be yours, Glenda. I love these hands. Soft and delicate and yet strong and firm. Some nights I thought they'd rip my back apart. I'm glad that you've come to your senses, Nick. We had something good. We had something real. We had something permanent. We had something that couldn't be destroyed by a little thing like you marrying somebody else. Uh, uh, why don't you wait here and, and I'll, I'll go in and, and, and I'll get Myron. Ira. Ira. Uh, n um, Nick, no, 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 you mustn't, Nick, don't do this. We're in the middle of soup. <laughs> Tell me you don't miss the fun. I don't. The laughs. I don't. The pizzas in the bathtub. I don't. The ice cubes in the bed. I don't. I don't. I love Ira. I have never been more content. Content? Content is an excitement. Content is content. Do you know what you used to do every time I came near you? You used to shake and quiver. That's what you're doing right now. You're shaking and quivering all over. Uh, that's because I'm up against the refrigerator. I want you back, Glenn. If you don't want to leave Ira, I can handle it. I'm not selfish. We can share our time with you. I'm out of town a lot anyway. Nick, uh, Nick you're, you're getting me all confused. I, I can't handle a lunatic ex-husband and six people for dinner at the same time, please. I'm going to kiss you now. No. One kiss. No. You tell me after that kiss that everything's dead between us. I'll never darken your lips again. No kiss, Nick. I'm a married woman with the governor inside. No kisses, please. You won't have to tell me. I'll see it in your eyes. I'll feel it in your body. Should something occur to you, however, don't be afraid to speak up. No. about the primordial gravity wave discovery, the more excited I get. I know, uh, being an astrophysicist right now is like being a rock star. <laughs> Only without the sex. <laughs> yeah, literally none of it. <laughs> what do you think about it, Sheldon? Meh. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This may be the biggest scientific breakthrough of our lifetime. How can you, as a theoretical physicist, not care about this? Maybe it's because I'm not an elitist. 
Yeah, what I'd like to know is, how does this gravity wave breakthrough help the man on the street, you know? Who's looking out for Joe Sixpack and all his quantum physics concerns? Oh my God, you're jealous. Yeah, why would I be jealous? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because the origin of the universe just got proven. The Higgs field just got proven, and you've been working on string theory for the last 20 years, and you're no closer to proving it than when you started. Yeah, well, I've had a lot on my plate. <laughs> We happen to live in a golden age of television. Excuse me, fellas. Ugh. Sorry for eavesdropping, but there actually was some big swing theory news today out of the Hadwan Kawaita. Really? Did they find evidence to support extra dimensions or supersymmetry? No, but they did find evidence that you'll believe anything. <laughs> Why would you do that? You're a string theorist as well. Incorrect. I am a swing pragmatist. I say I'm going to prove something that cannot be proved. I apply for grant money, and then I spend it on wicker and boards. <laughs> Waiter. Do you think he's right? Am I wasting my life on a theory that can never be proven? Maybe, but how great is Game of Thrones? <laughs> you know, Bob, imagine a blind man suddenly being able to see. Well, that's just what happened when scientists just announced that they've discovered gravity waves. They've discovered a new way with which to observe the universe. And it's just like a blind man being able to see. They saw, with the discovery of gravity waves, a, a, an event in the distant past, in the distant part of the universe, 1.3 billion light years away, that they cannot observe and have not observed in any other wavelength. They, 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 didn't, they didn't see it visually, they didn't see it in x-ray, they didn't see it in radio, they, they saw it using gravity waves. Mm -hmm. that's, that's absolutely phenomenal. It's the first time it's ever happened. And it happened with uh, LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravity Wave Observatory. And they just announced that they have detected, and it is for the first time, that gravity waves, predicted by Albert Einstein 100 years ago, exist. Fascinating. While gravity waves are not like the uh, electromagnetic wavelengths which with we see color in the visible spectrum or x-rays or radio waves or the like, they're a new kind of wave. I was going to ask us. you that because, you know, a wave would suggest a medium in which the wave would move through. Well, that's interesting too because during the, the, the uh, press conference, one of the scientists uh, made mention of the fact that they are transmitted by what, are, uh, what they label as gravitons. That's the particle that they say that um, transmits that energy. Sounds a lot like light. Again, it's, um, it's the dual nature of electromagnet or electromagnetic energy is that it both has properties of a wave and a particle. Yeah, like light. And with Photo gravity. Photons yeah. in the wave, amazing. With, with gravity, they use demonstrations to show the stretching and the distortion of space-time, but they also mention gravitons. So there you have that duality again. I, my mind can't grasp well, that's, that's, that's you know, personally. I don't have the background okay. to actually grasp that, but I'll leave it alone. You know, what happened was, um, what they saw was a signaling of a tremendous disturbance in the very fabric of space-time. Tremendous amount of energy. In this case, Time and space were quite literally warped by the collision of two massive black holes 1.3 billion light years away, and therefore, you know, 1.3 billion years ago. Now, the equivalent of three solar masses was completely annihilated and converted 
into a disturbance in space-time which we humans just detected. Hooray for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Actually, you know, that's why I picked this up. It is hooray for us. Here we are, this, this pile of biological carbon matter on this distant planet. And now we know, we saw, using a massive, fantastic type of observatory, this event so far away and so far, uh, you know, in the past of such tremendous energy that no other life form on the planet could even fathom its existence, you know. Mm. It, it's it's a quite an accomplishment for humanity. You know, I'm neither a physicist nor a the- theoretical physicist, but I can certainly follow the science used to explain the newly discovered phenomena, and quite frankly, you know, just um, flabbergasted at the monumental importance of this this discovery. It opens up a, a new way of looking at the universe, not unlike that historic moment when Galileo turned um, the, the telescope to look at the night sky, or when um, Heinrich Rudolf Hertz discovered radio waves, uh, the same waves predicted by James Clark Maxwell back in 1873. It's interesting to note that at that time, though, you know that Maxwell thought his discovery of radio waves had little practical value. <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know. Enter the era of gravity waves. The very first question on people's minds, though, is of what practical value are they? How do they affect Joe Sixpack? Um, Now, you can interpret that question in two ways. Firstly, it can be thought of as a dismissal of the discovery as unimportant unless it impacts your life. And secondly, you can interpret as a genuine inquiry, an, an anticipation of things to come. Where do we go from here? How will it impact my life? In anticipation, what will the great thinkers and tinkers of the world produce using this knowledge to further add to our knowledge of the universe and enrich our lives both? In fact, I, <laughs> you'll remember this. I asked that very question to do, to you. You know, what's the practical nature? What's the practical benefit of these mm-hmm. gratitude ways? And you, you took you, uh, you know, I used the second interpretation, and you, you immediately thought I was disparaging the discovery. Perhaps because that's just the kind of attitude most, or at least many, people have had to these kinds of discoveries. Mm-hmm. It seems to be that's the way people respond, just the way Sheldon did in that clip. Yeah. Meh. What does it mean to me? What's it do for Joe Sixpack? You know, I, I meant it genuinely, you know, in anticipation of what can we use this for? Now, the man-on-the-street type of question was asked at the press conference announcing the discovery. One reporter asked whether this thing will bring us further towards time travel and high-speed travel. The answer, almost on the chief from one of the lead scientists, effectively was that we're talking about warping of space and time by two massive black holes, and it's a completely different kind of scale we're talking about here, rather than than some guy in a lab taking a quantum leap into the past or some starship warping to the planet Klingon. (laughs) Yes, like sliders. In other words... I'll put put the black hole (laughs) in my basement and then hook it up to something. (laughs) Yeah, so he was was having a bit of fun with it. But, you know, in in other words, or exactly in my words, we're talking about science, whilst time travel is science fiction. You know, of course. He didn't say that, but... Uh, but, you know, you I said something it. interesting. You said this event happened 1.3 billion light years... Roughly. Uh, uh, ...away. And then you said, or 1.3 billion years ago. hmm Meaning those two things are almost the same. Were, what, did that happen where we are now, 1.3 billion years <laughs> ago? And that we're now looking past because we've moved down... <laughs> You know, along the space-time continuum? You missed the part where I said I wasn't a physicist, right? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no I just wonder if you ran into any. It just, it just boggles the mind. You, have, you start asking these questions, right? It does, yeah. 
you know, the man on the street, uh, which, of which I, I would fall into that category, really has no idea of the energies involved in producing the gravity waves which were just detected. And um, not just detected, but last year they detected them. And the scientists had to go through great lengths with many visual displays at the press conference to try to convey the magnitude of the disturbance of space-time necessary to produce those waves. Science fiction is a process of sitting at a computer and fantasizing while science progresses from observation to hypothesis to experimentation, taking decades. And this particular observatory, I think, was on the go for like 40 years. Einstein made observations of the world around him, hypothesized or theorized logical extensions to these observations, and over many years, engineers and scientists carried out the experiments to either confirm or deny Einstein's theories. I, you know, I, I remember reading about the results of the what was called at the time the Hafel-Keating experiment in 1971. I remember this in the papers. It, in an effort to test Einstein's theory that objects um, that are at different speeds relative to one another experience time differently, Hafel and Keating, and this is taken from Wikipedia, quote, took four cesium beam atomic clocks aboard commercial airliners. They flew twice around the world, first eastward, then westward, and compared the clocks against others that remained at the United States Naval Observatory. When reunited, the three sets of clocks were found to disagree with one another, and their differences were consistent with the predictions of special and general relativity. Unquote. Einstein was proven right in this respect. I remember that, 71. Mm. And, and since then, there's always been, um, there's been many confirmation and evidence to prove Einstein's theory, both theories of general and special relativity, correct. Einstein's equations of general and special relativity may be somewhat theoretical knowledge to most, but they have very serious practical effects for you and I. Just one example is the use of GPS to pinpoint your location on Earth that we all take for granted nowadays to within 15 meters. Now, since the GPS satellites are moving in high orbit in a weaker gravity field and at 14,000 kilometers an hour, the relativistic effect on their clocks make them tick 38 microseconds a day faster than the clocks on the ground. Now, without compensating for this relative difference, GPS satellites would lose their effectiveness in about two minutes. Really? Over a day, they'd be off by about 10 kilometers. No kidding. Yeah. So, because... That's, that's, that's huge. Well, of course, yeah. They'd be basically useless mm-hmm. unless we understood Einstein's equations. That's the practical. Oh, that's of, very practical. From the theoretical. I really have no idea what the discovery of gravity waves will lead to in terms of future discovery uh, or applications, but, but some of the discoveries were listed during the press conference, the possible discoveries. Uh, they could detect colliding black holes, which is what they just detected, spinning neutron stars, black holes tearing neutron stars apart, neutron stars colliding, supernovae explosions, and cosmic strings. They're, they hope to be able to detect these things. The detection of gravity waves will also disprove some paths of inquiry many theoretical physicists were taking up to this point. Why waste time and space contemplating (laughs) dead-end theories now that we have confirmed the existence of gravity waves and a particular way of, uh, of, of looking at the universe? While we may not have just witnessed a paradigm shift as such in theoretical physics, we've just witnessed yet another confirmation of Einstein's theories, which were a paradigm shift. These observations will have great impact on the lives of many scientists and engineers worldwide for decades to come. 
And then after that, for you and I, no doubt, much like radio um, evolved from uh, Maxwell's discoveries. It was actually a little humorous, though, to watch the press conference as some of the scientists made quips about being either a theoretical physicist or a real or (laughs) practical physicist. Not unlike the clip we're about to hear from Amy and Sheldon. Greetings! I brought Amy here to show her some of the work I'm doing. It's very impressive for theoretical work. Do I detect a hint of condescension? I'm sorry, was I being too subtle? (laughs) I meant compared to the real-world applications of neurobiology, theoretical physics is, what's the word I'm looking for? Hmm, cute. Are you suggesting the work of a neurobiologist like Babinski could ever rise to the significance of a physicist like Clark Maxwell or Dirac? I'm stating it outright. Babinski eats Dirac for breakfast and defecates Clark Maxwell. You take that back. Absolutely not. My colleagues and I are mapping the neurological substrates that subserve global information processing, which is required for all cognitive reasoning, including scientific inquiry, making my research ipso facto prior in the Ordo Cognoscendi. That means it's better than his research, and by extension, of course, yours. I'm sorry, I'm I'm still trying to work on defecating Clark Maxwell. Excuse me, but a grand unified theory, insofar as it explains everything, will ipso facto explain neurobiology. Yes, but if I'm successful, I will be able to map and reproduce your thought processes in deriving a grand unified theory, and therefore subsume your conclusions under my paradigm. That's the rankest psychologism. It was conclusively revealed as hogwash by Gottlob Frege in the 1890s. We appear to have reached an impasse. I agree. I move our relationship terminate immediately. Seconded. There being no objections? (laughs) The motion carries. Good day, Amy Farrah Fowler. Good day, Sheldon Cooper. Women, huh? Can't live with them, can't successfully refute their hypotheses. (laughs) Amen to that. Okay, so once we receive the next image and compare it to the ones we've already collected, we'll know what it is that we found. Ooh, perhaps it's a heliosheath scintillation. It could be a trans-Neptunian object. <gasps> Maybe it's a new planet. Unlikely, but it could be a dwarf planet. Eh, as long as it has a healthy gravity in all its moons, I'll be happy. <laughs> okay, the final image is coming in. And the object we discovered is... Come on, Daddy needs a livable planet he can rule with an iron fist. (laughs) A medium-sized asteroid. That's it? How common. That's the chicken fingers on the menu of space. I kind of like chicken fingers. Yeah, me too. I was stuck for a metaphor. (laughs) Come on, a medium-sized asteroid is still an interesting discovery. I suppose it could end up on a collision course with Earth and destroy life as we know it. You dream different than me. It is kind of cute. Yeah, it is. And you know we get to name it. 
Do we better choose a name no one can make fun of? Sir Frederick William Herschel didn't do Uranus any favors. <laughs> You're listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 megahertz. Now, while Sir William Herschel was the discoverer of the planet Uranus, or as I prefer to call it, Uranus. <laughs> the, the two are both it's yours, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> both are acceptable according to uh, wherever you look it up. Um, the German astronomer um, Johann Erlert Bode was the one to actually name it. So Herschel didn't name the planet. In fact, Herschel called it, uh, what was it, Jerogium uh, Sidus, or George's Star, after King George III, who reigned at the time that he discovered it. Even though that that name persisted for some 70 years after its discovery in some quarters. It was finally and officially listed as Uranus, or Uranus, by Her Majesty's Nautical Almanac Office in 1850. Wow. So there is a little bit of a, um, I don't know, a glitch in uh, the Big Bang Theory. Uh, they're usually quite accurate in their um, in their science when they quote it on that uh, comedy TV show, but uh, this time I think they missed that one. Today, of course, the naming of new celestial bodies and features follow much more rigorous oversight by the International Astronomical Union, which brings me to my topic of the naming of craters on the planet Venus and my dubious involvement with the naming of one particular crater. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Or is that just right? <laughs> <laughs> All will be revealed. In May of 1989, NASA launched the unmanned space probe Magellan to map the surface of Venus using radar. Now, it had been mapped before by the Russians in 1983, and actually from Earth-based Earth radar, but at much cruder resolutions, from about one to two kilometers. Um, as remarkable as the Venera mapping was, it was so crude that it was actually difficult to distinguish a crater from a volcano. It was just that, it was just that blurry. Now, Magellan's map had a resolution as good as 100 meters per pixel, making it very easy to tell the features apart. On March 8, 1991, JPL and NASA issued a press release inviting the public to submit names which they would compile into a list and then send onto the IAU for them to name the newly distinguishable features on the planet Venus. By international agreement, many features of Venus's, uh, Venus are, are named for ancient goddesses, but craters and volcanic caldera, or vents, are named for actual women or women's names. The naming is further restricted to women who had been deceased by at least three years and must have been in some way notable or worthy of the honor. Names of military or political figures of the 19th, 20th centuries were specifically forbidden under rules of the IAU, as were the names of persons prominent in any of the uh, six main living religions, and names of specific national significance were not allowed. Reading this press release, I was driven to write to JPL, this, remember this is before the web, mm. <laughs> write to JPL and submit a name of a woman whose work has helped shape my life and yours, Bob, Ayn Rand. On May 7th, 1991, I submitted the following letter to Venus Names, Magellan Project Office, Mail Stop 230-201, Jet Propulsion <laughs> Laboratory 4800, Oak Grove Drive, Pasadena, California 91109. Dear Sir slash Madam, may I suggest that the name of the author and philosopher Ayn Rand be considered for the naming of features on Venus? This Russian-born American was the founder of the branch of philosophy known as objectivism, which holds reason as a virtue and rational man as the highest ideal. The creators of the Magellan probe, knowingly or not, have been living 
Rand's ideal. Rand was the author of many books. Her most notable are the fictional works Atlas Shrugged and the philosophic Selfishness, the Unknown Ideal. She also authored an essay praising NASA's Apollo project. She died in the early 80s. Sincerely, Robert B. Vaughn. Now, I'd be the first to admit that my letter may not have been the reason for the International Astronomical Union to name a Venusian crater after Ayn Rand. But then again, why not? You don't have have any evidence to the contrary. They did ask for names. I did supply one, and the IAU ended up naming a crater after her three years later. Wow. So why shouldn't I take at least a portion of the credit, however small? Even if they do cite as their reference the Index to Women of the World by N.O. Ireland, perhaps it was my letter which led them to look up that index. I'd like to think so. After all, there are only 899 named craters on Venus, and most of those, the vast majority... Uh, of these are names of not actual persons, but simply female first names taken from the languages of all the languages of the earth, like Abigail or Bernice. Almost the way they name hurricanes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, random yeah. names, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, only a few hundred are named after actual persons. So I think Rand is up there, and it's it's quite an honor. If I were to do the whole thing over again, though, I would have worded that letter a little differently, knowing much more about um, Rand's philosophy of objectivism now than I did 25 years ago. After all, I had just recently, at that time, been introduced to Rand's writing in, in 1981-91, but I, I think I did pretty well. By the way, Rand Crater for those who wish to know, is 24.3 kilometers in diameter, a rather sizable chunk of real estate. It lies at latitude a negative 63.8 degrees and longitude 59.5 degrees. And you can find information about Rand Crater by searching for the IAU's Gazetteer of Planetary Nomenclature online. It's all there. So, so uh, is that where Galt Gulch is? <laughs> <laughs> On Venus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. Uh, by the way, they do say in that gazetteer that um, they did name Rand Crater after Ayn Rand. So that's, there's that's no question like, about it. One of the modern names chosen was that of um, our, our Canadian artist, Emily Carr, for example. So we have a Canadian uh, craters, you could say, on, <laughs> on, on Venus. Then there is a Christie uh, crater named after the English author Agatha, Agatha Christie. Klein crater after Patsy Klein. And Montessori crater after Maria Montessori. Other notable women to have been honored in such a manner were Grandma Moses, Beatrix Potter, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Virginia Woolf, and Laura Ingalls, we- Ingalls Wider, Wilder. Rather. Now, although her work will long outlive her, it's also nice to know that Ayn Rand was influential enough to be honored with such an eternal memorial as a crater on Venus. Well, that's awesome, Robert. that it for today? That's it. I mean, there's my claim to fame. Excellent. Well, we've learned a lot today. We've learned that space is warped, just like feminism. (laughs) And I guess... We've learned a lot about waves, and that's something we'll have to do right now. We'll have to wave goodbye for another week. So join us again then when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Hi, Sheldon, what's up? Good news. You're an asteroid. Uh, please tell me what to say next. 
perhaps I should explain. While working with Kuthrapali, we discovered an asteroid, and I named it after you. Oh, Sheldon, thank you. That's so romantic. But what about Rajesh? He was okay with you choosing the name? Well, it took a little negotiating, but I wore him down. Uh, we get the asteroid, and if you and I have children, they all have to be named Rajesh. All of them? Even the girls. Okay, I think I know what to say now.